Good evening and welcome. I'm Diane Meyerhoff, host for tonight's candidate forum for state representative in Chittenden District 3, Jericho Underhill, and District 4-1 in Charlotte. Tonight's show is being aired live on Channel 17 and streamed live on the Channel 17 website. We welcome your comments and questions. Please join the conversation at 862-3966. Candidates joining me tonight are the three Democratic incumbents, George Till and Trevor Squirrel from Chittenden 3, and Mike Yantachka from Chittenden 41. Thank you Thank all you. so much for coming out tonight. Thank you for having us. Um, the candidates are running unopposed, so we're going to conduct the forum in more of a forum than as a debate. Um, however, each candidate will make an opening statement, and then we'll discuss topics of interest to voters. So, George, tell us why you're running and what qualifies you for the position. What are your priorities as we come into the next session? Thank you, Diane. Um, I've been in the legislature now for five terms, ten years, um, and although I've had uh, you know some real successes along the way, there are um, some priorities that I have that really haven't gotten across the finish line yet, and I really want to continue on and, and press for those. Um, in particular, the things that uh, you know, that I'm really interested in this year is um, raising the smoking age to 21. Um, and, the um, problem of adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, in Vermont, and um, how that impacts our healthcare spending, our schools, our social services, and our corrections departments, as well as our economy. Um, and um, in addition, um, we need to have a, an excise tax on electronic cigarettes. Um, I want to push once again for primary enforcement of our seatbelt law um, and uh, paid family leave is um, it is a big priority for me again this year so that's that's why I want to be there the second reason I, I, I like to be there is a lot of times the discussion is very negative about Vermont and I'd like to emphasize that there are a lot of very good things about Vermont you know Vermont has is rated by Wallet Hub as being the, the best state in the country to have a baby. Um, we are one of the safest states, either number one or number two, depending on which poll you look at. Uh, we have um, some of the best public schools. Um, again, Wallet Hub calls our schools the fifth best in the, in the country. Um, the Opportunity Index says that uh, Vermont is um, the, the best state to be born in. And we have a low unemployment rate. Um, and so there, you know, we have a very low infant death rate. We have a relatively low maternal mortality rate. There are just so many good things about Vermont. And I think the negative things are often overstated. Um, the issue around our, you know, the taxes in Vermont and those. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm the newbie of the three here. I'll be going into my second term. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed my first term. Challenging, interesting, uh, learned a lot. Uh, I've always uh, felt that uh, serving your community is a very important thing to do. Uh, I moved to Underhill in uh, 2000, and I've been there for uh, 18 years now. 
Uh, I got involved in, in more of a local community in terms of the Conservation Commission, I ended up chairing the Conservation Commission, and also ended up uh, being a member on the Planning Commission and chairing the Planning Commission. At one time, I was chairing both at the same time, and I don't recommend that to anybody. Uh, so obviously, I have a, a strong interest in environmental issues, and I carry that over in, in, into, into the State House. Uh, I always had an interest in, in running uh, uh, as a legislator, but didn't know if the opportunity would present itself. And the opportunity did present itself two years ago when uh, incumbent Bill Frank retired after 12 years. And uh, I saw that as my opportunity to see what it was like to campaign on politic and, and, and become a part of the legislature. And uh, I was fortunate to win. And uh, I got my choice to be on the Natural Resources Committee, so I, I got to delve into the, those issues that are probably closest to me, which are water quality, solid waste, and also issues around forest fragmentation. Great. Thanks so much, Trevor. Appreciate it. Mike, tell us. Yes, uh, Mike Intochka, and I uh, represent Charlotte and part of uh, Heinsburg. Uh, I've been in the legislature for eight years, and uh, um, and I'm there to work for values and opportunities to benefit all Vermonters. Uh, I've served on the Natural Resource and Energy Committee for six years, and then that committee was split up into two committees. Uh, well, actually, the, the responsibilities went to two different committees. A new committee was created, Energy and Technology Committee, which I'm on, and the Natural Resources part went to the committee that Trevor's on. Um, so my focus has been on um, the environment and renewable energy. And uh, I want to continue working for, uh, you know, the, uh, the aspects, uh, the energy aspects, uh, and uh, the committee also has responsibility for telecommunications and the IT infrastructure of the Vermont government. So uh, there's a lot of work to be done there, not only with uh, the energy issues, but also bringing broadband uh, to uh, Vermont or throughout Vermont and um, making sure that our our computer systems are secure and um, our, the data that we have on Vermonters is secure as well. So um, you know uh, Vermont families need a healthy env healthy environment and so we need clean air and clean water and that's an essential part of what Vermont is so we want to continue to have that. Um, education issues, um, every child deserves an excellent public education system so that they can uh, become productive citizens and develop their, to their full potential. So we need to continue supporting that. And we all need access to affordable health care, safe communities to raise our kids, and economic opportunities so that if you're working 40 hours a week, you earn enough money to, uh, to live on that. Uh, for food, clothing, and shelter. So that's why I want to serve another two years. Great, thank you so much, gentlemen. Lots of, uh, lots of, lots of topics to talk about. You all have some areas of specialty, that's great. Um, so let's start, uh, let's start with healthcare, <coughs> since a number of you brought it up. Um, and I know this is a particular topic for you, George, yes. So um, lots of great ideas, uh, but you know, how do we limit the, the, the spending, what the, the cost is for, for folks who, um, who have to um, go out there and, and find insurance? Well, I, you know, as the only physician in the legislature for the past 10 years, I have a, a little bit of a unique perspective. Um, 
but the, the real essence of limiting the cost is getting serious about prevention and using other policies to help with, with uh, preventing health problems. Um, the things that are so obvious, um, uh, things like the tobacco policy, right? So, so what do we spend a year on tobacco-related diseases? We spend about $348 million a year on tobacco-related illnesses just in Vermont. Smokers die on average 10 years earlier than others. It accounts for about one in five deaths nationally. So it is, it's, a, it's still a huge problem. We've made some progress. We are in very high risk, at very high risk of losing that progress with the whole e-cigarette things. But one of the things that virtually costs nothing and um, has been uh, proven in multiple places now to significantly reduce smoking is raising the smoking age to 21. It really matters. It really matters. <laughs> it really matters because if you don't start smoking before you're 21, you're probably never going to start smoking. <laughs> and when you raise the smoking age to 21, that means the 18 to 20 year olds can't buy the cigarettes. Is that really true? Yes. Can they really not get them? Well, if you're enforcing properly. Okay. Um, but we know that that's the group who provides 90% of the cigarettes to younger, younger people. Wow. We also know that the earlier you start, the earlier you try nicotine, the more likely you are to be addicted. It takes less to get you addicted and it's much harder to stop. So raising the age to 21, you know, it started as a movement in, in one town down in, in Massachusetts. And in that town is a Boston suburb and they raised the age to 21. Here we hear people would just go across the border to buy it in New Hampshire, but guess what? They didn't even go across the town line down there. In just a few years, their smoking rate was 50% below the surrounding towns, 50% below. And that was the single intervention, was raising the, the smoking age. So we know it works. It's been done in multiple states now. Um, we've passed it in the House. The House gets it. Um, it came to a very close uh, vote in the Senate, sadly. Um, there were a couple of people who would shock you that they voted against it, but they did. Um, and, uh, and so it, um, it, it didn't pass, but we're going to give it a go again. Um, because if you want to control your health care costs, this is <coughs> low-hanging fruit, $348 million. If you cut your smoking rate in half, that's a huge amount of money. Yeah. There are, and there are other examples of that same kind of thing, where if we get serious about prevention, and we know what accounts for what causes 25% of cancers, 25% of heart disease, um, you know, a, a wide range of, of diseases. And we know how to reduce that. Now, do, you, do you folks agree as well? Were you in, in support of this, uh, this change in the... Yeah, in definitely. The and I, yes. I think we also need to tax e-cigarettes the same as we Absolutely. do regular and cigarettes. Are they as addictive? E-cigarettes? I'm not familiar with Because they're nicotine delivery devices. So it's just another way of smoking yeah. a cigarette, essentially? Sure. It is. It, it, oh. <laughs> no, no, I mean, not, not, I agree wholeheartedly. We need yeah. to put an excise tax just like we do uh, regular tobacco. Oh, so they're not, they're not taxed no, the same way as cigarettes? They are only currently taxed okay. with sales the sales tax. tax. Okay. But we need to put a hefty... Um, well, an excise tax on them at the distributor level because we know that there are two groups that are most price sensitive with things like tobacco and e-cigarettes and that's the younger people 
and that's people with lower income. And those are both groups that we absolutely need to target if we're going to if we're going to reduce our health care costs. The e-cigarettes are every bit as addictive. They do not really help people stop smoking. Um, it's that you know it turns out that it, what it does is have people smoking two different things, and there's just no evidence that in the long run it reduces. Um, health risks by doubling <coughs> up on the smoke. It may, in fact, make it worse, but it's going to take time to, to yeah. prove that. Yeah, they kind of snuck in before we were ready for them, it sounds like. And the utilization yeah. is exploding in the yeah. teenagers, yeah. which is why I say we are about to start losing the war on cigarettes. Yeah. They're much more expensive than, than, than uh, cigarettes, and, you know, over time, people will morph. It's, it's clear that people who use e-cigarettes smoke more, yeah regular cigarettes and smoke longer um, so, okay, so don't that, start those, no don't start <laughs> and those are things we need to do to control health care costs okay. yeah um, let's switch because uh, you folks both talked about um, water quality and environment mm -hmm. um, talk about some things we can do I know people here are very concerned about Lake Champlain we're hearing it all the time we've got algae blooms and um, the, the uh, Beaches in Burlington have been closed a lot lately, which I assume has other issues connected to that. But um, tell us what your ideas are for that. Try well, to, yeah. uh, there, there are two elements to it, right? We, we've had an ongoing conversation with the Environmental Protection Agency mm -hmm. over uh, nutrient loading in the waters of, of the state of Vermont. And that's not just Lake Champlain. It's Lake Memphremagog, the Connecticut River watersheds, and uh, even the North Hudson watersheds. And over time, there was an agreement made for a total maximum daily load for phosphorus uh, loading in Lake Champlain, okay? Out of that came Act 64, which was passed in 2015, which is the Water Quality Act, if you will, for, for Vermont, where it look at all the different sectors that contribute, not just in Lake Champlain, but those other watersheds I just talked about. And from that, uh, the treasurer state treasurer was tasked with looking at what it would cost to meet the requirements under the EPA and meeting some of the requirements under Act 64 and it was determined that we probably need over and above what we already get for funding from various sources about 25 million dollars each year for the next 20 years and in a sense the, whole, the, the total bill with all the revenue sources is about two billion dollars over 20 years. So our big struggle, and one of the things we keep working on in our committee for over the last couple of years, is where, where are we coming up with the long-term funding f to do this work, okay? And when the EPA gave us a report card this past year, they, I think they worked on, I think they identified 28 areas that we were supposed to be working on, 25 of them were passed, if you will, and th two being worked on, and one, not a pass. And, the biggie, long-term funding. And there's been an over-reliance in this administration on the capital fund, which is bonded money, to help support that work or fill that hole. That's not sustainable over time. And we need to figure out how we're gonna come up with, with that long-term funding. We have some money that comes from the property uh, transfer tax, which is about $4 million a year that goes toward the Queen Water Fund. There's some additional monies that are going to move towards clean water funding called the sheets, which is the money tied up with bottle deposits and things like that. Right now, the distributors, if they don't reimburse, they get to keep that money. We're going to take that money and, and direct that towards water quality. Uh, and then we have capital 
bond funding, but it's filling in the rest of that. And we're still not getting to 25 million. We're already getting to about 18 or 19 million. And that's what the agencies are talking about in terms of moving forward in fiscal year 2020. That's not enough. And relying on the capital uh, funding is not going to do it over the long term either. We don't have an answer. I was in a forum last week. I was going to ask you week. a question, you know. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we presented ideas, and, 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 and Representative Till would know that, because being on Ways and Means, we've ah. actually submitted ideas or multiple ideas about where we could raise those funds. But I was in a forum last week where all the agency heads were present that are part of a water quality initiative. And uh, they're starting to realize that they have to come up with a long-term solution, that status quo of what they're doing is not going to work. So, so one of the big problems is that there's a reluctance to actually do anything to raise the money. And, um, Seems to be a theme. <laughs> right, I mean, be, because there's you know, no new taxes, right? right? So think about this. If you took the cost of one cup of coffee at Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks a month and, a, and take, take that $2 a month and put it on every property that's in Vermont, uh, you could raise, what, $20 million? And that would go pretty far in raising the $25 million that, uh, that we need each year to do that. You know, I'm willing to give up a cup, cup, cup of coffee a month for this if it's gonna help clean up the lake. Polluters need to pay, and who are the polluters? It's all of us. 40% of, of the phosphorus going into into the lake, it comes from agriculture. Another 40% comes from our roads and our municipalities. Um, and only 3% is actually coming from our wastewater treatment plants. So, you know, we need to, we need to, everybody has to be in. We had that saying, all in, right? Uh, everybody in or whatever it was called when we did Act 64, was it? Act 64. Um, and, uh, we all have to be willing to contribute something in order to clean it up. If I may just add a comment to uh, Representative Yantaka, the one of the problems we have with, with uh, the, the Federal Clean Water Act is the jurisdiction of the EPA and, and dealing with this problem. So if we don't come up, the, the EPA has basically said to Vermont, you, f you come up with this idea and we'll work with you on that. If we fail to do that, the EPA could come in and tell us what we should do. But the EPA only has jurisdiction over point source pollution, not non-point source pollution. Why don't you explain the difference, Beth? Well, Beth? stuff running off of farm fields is non-point, non running off of, okay. off of roads. Most of your point source pollution is wastewater, as Representative Natasha was talking about. And that's the least contributing factor okay. now. So if EPA comes back and says, you will do to meet these requirements, we're going to be spending a lot of money with very little benefit from that. Oh. And that's okay. a reality. This could very well happen. So yeah. let, me, let, me, let me chime in just a bit. Um, the EPA has set mid-2019 as the time by which we need to tell them what our long-term source is. Yet all of last year, two years, the administration came in time and time again and said, we don't need to identify a source now. We don't a need more, a funding source yeah. now. There were a lot of a lot of thoughts about different funding sources. There were proposals about different funding sources. You know, uh, ideally, in taxing, you want a nexus. You want some connection between what you're charging and 
um, and and the, the purpose. Um, you know, the, the, one of the suggestions that came from the Natural Resources Committee was um, a, a rooms tax, um, a surcharge on rooms. Um, it, it is an issue in terms of um, our tourism. If our lake is awful, our tourism is going to tank. Um, if, if we lose the Vermont brand um, by being obviously polluted, the, the tourism is going to get down the hill. And so, you know, I see a nexus there. A lot of other people didn't s seem to see a nexus there. What, you know, what makes the most intuitive sense to most of us, I think, was um, an impervious surface charge. So the whole state is being mapped for what's, how much is impervious, because that's where the water runs from. And so you could conceivably look at each parcel, what amount is impervious, and charge a, a tax based on that. That makes the most sense. The problem is that A, it's going to be very expensive to set it up, and B, it has to be constantly updated because things are constantly changing. So it's not only a setup expense, um, but it's an ongoing expense. So the next proxy for that that is, has been suggested is just a parcel fee. So rather than um, based on the actual physical um, setup of the parcel that just parcels pay equally. And there are people who think that that is an okay, nobody is wildly enthusiastic about that, but, but people um, point out that, well, but some parcels, like forest lands, actually reduce the runoff, and yet we're going to charge them too. So it's a little bit messy, and it's all more complicated by the fact that the administration keeps insisting we don't need to identify more. And the last point I would make is, yeah, we're using a lot of bonding money, and who's going to pay that back? It's not us. It's our kids. And we're pushing this off onto our kids. We've created the pollution for profits and whatnot, but we're going to push this off onto our kids to pay for it, and that's just not right. And tell me, I know some of the towns have, uh, I think it's per parcel fees or it's impervious surface fees yes. that goes into their wastewater and stormwater, yes. right? Yes. So is this, is this sort of a similar thing to that? And have they been successful in figuring out those issues of impervious versus pervious and kind of keeping track? And does it make more sense at a town yeah. level than They're it does at a state They're called stormwater utilities. Yeah. yeah. And I think we have four of them right now. And they have been successful. And they take that money and reinvest that into stormwater mitigation and, and work like that restoration work. And then the dilemma is that if we do move forward with, 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 yeah. with some statewide program, right. where do they fit into that since they're already doing it, I right? think I heard that at one of the forums. <laughs> <laughs> I think we had a chat about that, yeah. But obviously, I mean, they are kind of at the forefront, they at are. least in Vermont, right, of, of trying to deal with some of those issues yes. around their own yeah. raising funds for wastewater. I mean, it's just everyone's trying to raise funds for the things that are important, right, to all of us. So, okay, interesting. Um, so let's, um, we talked, we, we touched a little bit on, on agriculture. Uh, as part of this this uh, runoff and such. Let's talk a little bit about uh, remaining dairy farms in Vermont. Not a whole lot left. Um, you know, is this an important issue for us, and, and what can we do? I'm changing economy, you know, where do we go from here? Um, and, and is this one of yours, Mike? Well, it's, it's not one of mine, but uh, my, my thoughts on that are that um, dairy farmers right now are really being stressed because of the low price that they're getting for the milk. It costs them about $16 a hundred weight in order to break even, and they're only getting $12 to $14 per hundred weight right now. Uh, a couple of years ago, they were getting $18 per hundred weight. 
which was a really good year for them. Um, it, I'm not exactly sure how the prices are set, but I know that, that they're pretty much dependent on what the uh, co-ops that they're selling the milk to uh, are giving them for it. And, uh, and I don't know how those prices are set. Uh, when we go to the supermarket, we're paying 3 to $4 per gallon of milk. Uh, that's not what the farmers are getting. Um, so I, I don't know how we deal with that. Uh, the Farm Bill did not pass in Congress, and that was, uh, that was legislation at the federal level that would have helped farmers, dairy farmers. So um, yeah, we're losing farms, not a good thing. Um, a lot of farms, though, are turning to uh, beef cattle. Uh, I know at least one farm in Charlotte that uh, converted from dairy to beef. And um, again, that I'm, I'm not sure exactly how they're marketing that, but, but I'm hoping they're doing well as a result. Well, they're still in business. They're still in business right Something, now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, the only thing I would add to that is that it's certainly there's, there's a group, we've had a lot of conversation about we need to move away from conventional dairy farms to more like organic or beef or, or so, so, kind of, more yeah. specialized. Yeah. Uh, but it also begs the question, because when you have a conversation about what it would take to move to more of organic practices, or and not specifically organic, but natural, more natural processes, where's the market for all of that? And, and I think that's, the market's not quite there either to, for everyone to move in that direction. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, George? I, I, I agree with, with what's been said, but the, the only thing I would, the only things I would add are, number one, the I don't have very many positive things to say about the administration in Washington, but um, the one little piece of the the trade deal um, is going to make uh, make for more milk exports to Canada, um, and that's a good thing for Vermont. Um, that's that that's one thing, and the other piece is. I think it partly is going to it's going to take a commitment on the part of Vermonters in general to do more, pay more for local and organic stuff grown here in Vermont, and it's going to be a little more costly. But but I think that's the going to have to happen to to save the farms. And it's happening somewhat already. Oh, absolutely. Yes, we have a, we have a very yeah. successful yeah. farm in in my community, mm -hmm. Jericho Settlers Farm. Um, mm -hmm. We see them at a lot of farmers markets. We see them at the market at the hospital every week. Uh, right, lots right. of, you know, I mean, lots of, of, of good things happening there, lots of um, innovative thinking. Um, so it's possible. Yeah, we're, we're I'm sorry, and if you move in that direction too, you're also having a positive, <coughs> a more positive impact on the environment mm -hmm. and these large conventional dairy farms. Mm -hmm. and I mm -hmm. think that's important also. Mm. And the non-dairy farms, we are seeing a growth in those, and uh, um, there's still a small part of the agricultural economy, but but they're growing. Yeah. yeah. So, let's um, 
let's talk, I think this segues, um, climate change. Climate change, and all right, I, I, I was waiting for that. Yeah, I'm on there. And it's actually kind of funny because the question that, that I have is um, how can Vermont turn climate change to its advantage? And the only thing I can yes. think about is, you know, being out in my bikini in January. For some reason, that's what comes to mind. So I just love the way they worded that because, you know, how do you turn that to your advantage? But I'm, I'm curious to hear what you have to say. And I also want to throw in um, something that, um, uh, Mike, you talked about, which was energy, too, because I, I know that's yeah. not on here, and I think that's something, mm -hmm. at least for me, those are, those so, are connected. Yeah, the so two are tied together talk, very talk closely. Um, so why don't you start us off? So, so first of all, uh, climate change can be looked at in, in a way that um, uh, provides an opportunity to increase jobs. It's, it could be a boon to the economy. Uh, we've created with renewable energy, our renewable energy policy has helped to create 19,000 jobs in Vermont uh, since 2011. And um, we've also got uh, an awful lot of homes and businesses that need uh, to improve their weatherization. Um, we need to do some investment though. Uh, we're, we, our plan, our goal was to uh, have 80,000 homes uh, weatherized, low-income low family uh, homes weatherized uh, by 2020. We're way behind the curve on that. We are nowhere near getting that done. Um, that, that's funded by the gross receipts tax, which is like uh, at this point three-quarters of a cent, uh, three-quarters of a percent on the price of um, oil that's brought into the state and passed on to the consumer, of course. So in a way, that's a little bit of a carbon tax, uh, but it's a very tiny one. Um, we have to get off fossil fuels. That's the only way we're gonna impact climate change. Uh, transportation and heating sectors are the two biggest components of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, instead of going down, which was the intent, uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions actually went up and it's primarily due to the transportation and heating sectors. Um, cars are becoming more, vehicles are becoming more efficient, but at the same time, more vehicle miles are being driven. And that's one of the reasons. So how do we get people to change? Oh, on, the, on the other hand, the electricity, our electricity sector uh, is becoming cleaner and cleaner because we've got the renewable energy standard uh, that utilities are working to. And <clears throat> so uh, what we need to do is we need to transition our transportation and heating from fossil fuels to electricity, cleaner electricity. And how do we do that? That's a big question. So you could do that either by mandate. Nobody likes mandates. You could do that by market forces. So what does that mean? Well, um, raise the price of fossil fuels and use the money you collect from that to help incentivize transitioning to electricity, to clean energy. So more electric vehicles, uh, heat pumps for the home uh, and business, and um, you know, th those, types of, uh, those types of things. So um, I was on a uh, ad hoc group of legislators that put together a plan called the Essex Plan. Uh, which would have put a graduated, incre gradually increasing uh, price on carbon pollution, uh, price per gallon uh, of fossil fuel, and uh, use those revenues 
the plan in, in the Essex plan was to use those revenues to reduce your electricity bill uh, for both businesses and for individuals. Uh, four cent per gallon tax would raise about $30 million a year. If we take 10% of that, $3 million a year, and we took that and put it into the uh, same fund that is used for weatherization, we could increase the number of houses that are insulated better so that they don't use as much fuel to heat. So it provides, there are economic opportunities for all Vermonters um, if we are willing to make the investment and address climate change. But we have to be willing to we have to be willing to do it. We just can't wish this problem away. It seems to be the theme in many of <coughs> the issues that we're talking about tonight. <laughs> we can't wish them away. Mm -hmm. um, Trevor, your thoughts? Well, uh, I would just add that, and I can't think of who the firm is right now, but we just passed legislation last year that allocated uh, uh, about 100000 maybe 120000 to do a study on carbon pricing and look at some different options. Uh, one of them is the Essex plan. The other one is a, a Western Climate Initiative, and please correct me if I get anybody no, you're wrong. Right. You're the yeah. expert, <laughs> and that's more of a cap and trade. That's actually uh, a number of states, and also Quebec is part of that. And I listened to a presentation of their program a number of, well, more than a number of months ago now, but I was very impressed with that. And there's about three or four, maybe five items that this research firm is looking at, and and is to present a report back to us. Do you recall when it's? In, in January. January, I believe yeah. it is. I can't think of the name of the firm at this point. The initials it, RFT comes to mind, but okay. I'm not sure. But they are, <laughs> we had a forum last week where uh, various stakeholders and the public could come to a forum and, and talk about what, how, they wanted to make sure that the direction they were taking was what the public was looking for. And the people and did involved. that, did and you we, happen? That happened last week, and uh, I thought it was pretty positive. Yeah, the 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 thing. Another point then is we'll let that. Go, George. Go ahead. Uh, I, I just wanted to make the point that we can't do it ourselves. Vermont by itself is not going to do this, and there are a number of approaches we can use to to do this to help people transition from fossil fuels. But we're working with other states. There's a group of us that are working with legislators in Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Maine, New York, and even Montana. Uh, Oregon, Washington, uh, to uh, kind of put a national focus on, on pricing carbon pollution. Well, I, I think Michael just stole the point that I would have made, and that is that <laughs> if, if Vermont stopped producing CO2, it wouldn't change the, the trajectory of global warming. Um, and we can't do this alone, and we have to be very careful that we don't um, hinder our ourselves economically this needs to be a regional thing and it's you know that's why the importance of working with legislators from from other places this needs to be at minimum regional given what's happened nationally it it's it's very frightening uh, right now and and uh, you know clearly what we can do here by ourselves is is completely inadequate so mm -hmm. so it, it is going to take um, a group of state uh, states together to do it because it's certainly not coming out of Washington. And it sounds like that's happening at least at some level now. It's yes. happening yeah, at actu some level actually, now. Actually, so. we have a very successful um, regional initiative called the Greenhouse Gas Initiative, Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, Reggie. And uh, what that is, that pertains to the electric sector, and uh, the 
the trade in clean, um, what do they call it, uh, clean energy credits or re renewable energy credits, uh, and the amount of carbon that's reduced by uh, changing over, changing our electric utilities over to renewable energy are traded among the states. And uh, uh, that provides actually uh, quite a bit of money in, in for Vermont utilities, uh, saving us uh, more than $400 million over the years that that's been in effect on and electric rates. How are, how are the electric utilities doing in terms of moving toward 100% renewable? That sounds like what the, the goal is, yes? Yeah, the goal is 90% renewable okay. by 2050. But oh, wow. uh, okay. the utilities are uh, doing very well. Uh, Burlington Electric is 100% renewable. <laughs> and uh, so is Washington Electric Co-op. Vermont Electric Co-op is getting there. And uh, so is Green Mountain Power. Well, Green Mountain Power right now is about 60% renewable. Okay. And is it is it hard to make that move from 60? I mean, 60 to 90 sounds like a lot. I don't I don't know. <laughs> well, is that reasonable? In how many years? A, is that? a lot of it, a lot of it is an accounting because it's based on renewable energy credits, uh, okay. and uh, you can have more renewable energy R right now. Um, let's see. Starting in 2017, there was a. Uh, an increase in the percentage of renewable energy that you had that the utilities had to uh, be at each year, and it increases each year. So if they're actually if they've actually got renewable energy credits in ex excess of that, they can sell those excess renewable energy credits to Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York, whatever, and uh, and they would get some money for that, which would offset the amount of uh, the charges that we have to pay for electricity. So uh, that's been a successful program. Pertains only to electricity. There's talk about actually extending it to transportation. Mm -hmm. That would be a huge impact yes. from what it sounds like because transportation is such a, a big user, right? Mm -hmm. Huh? Interesting. Is that moving along in the legislature? Is that, is that being As talked in, about? Well, it's something that's being talked about. Yeah. That's, that's about where we're at right now, talking. Yeah. It's not <laughs> something that we can legislate alone. Yeah, yeah, this, right. This, it has to be through your, coordination through your regional groups. And, yeah. and, and, and well, because yeah. of that, it really also is going to take governors from mm -hmm. multiple yeah. states to, to be on board with it, too. Yeah. Leadership. Mm -hmm. right? And that's what right. this is all about in the end, yes? It's be somebody that's willing to walk the walk. Yeah, or you know, get out in front. Talk. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we have a, a few minutes left. Let's talk. Uh, we, we've really we've covered a lot of topics here. Thank you all for for being so so game. Um, let's talk a little bit about education. Uh, mm. You know, concern. How do we maintain the quality of education at the same time when we have dis, uh, declining um, school age populations? Um, Trevor, why don't we start with you? Whoa. Uh, oh, we could start with somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to start. Yeah, George actually okay. is much George, more familiar with the education okay. piece because of his background. So. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, yeah, so. I spent, you know, 15 years on the school board. I've been making budgets. That's how I got into this mess in the first place. Okay. <laughs> Entry um, point. Um, you know, I, I'm not so as worried about the quality of the education as I am about um, the equality mm -hmm. and the equality of opportunities uh, across different districts um, and and the the cost <coughs> and how we're going to fund it you know when you when we go around knocking on doors which we've all done over the last 10 years I can say far and away the most common 
complaint I get is about property taxes. Mm -hmm. And we have chosen to fund education through property taxes, and that causes a, a bit of a problem. Um, you know, if you look at our taxes compared to other states, and the Joint Fiscal Office does this every year, and the Tax Foundation does this every year, the one that's actually really consistently very, very high is our property taxes. Um, and, you know, so we need to control the costs, and there are a couple big initiatives around that. One is school mergers, uh, which I can say we did in Chittenden East, um, and it has paid real dividends. Um, but, so that helps. But then there's also, this past year, we, we worked on um, special education and how we deliver it and doing a very, very different paradigm with special education, which I think is going to go a long way towards helping um, contain the, the costs in special education instead of the um, very regimented uh, federal plan, more um, allowing the, the school districts to manage more how, how they do their special education. Um, so I, I think that, that, that those are steps in the cost control. I, th I think that the, the mergers are important for, for opportunity. You know, in our district we had six elementary schools. You know, three of them barely more than a mile from each other. And, and you know, the, the, the larger one had um, more programs that our kids would have loved, but we couldn't afford in our our little school, you know, the merger has allowed us to do things like that, like foreign language in elementary school. I mean, that's tremendous. Um, <clears throat> but the merger's allowed us to do that. And so, you know, it's, it's the opportunities, the, the breadth of opportunities. You know, over and over again, we're ranked as one of the, the five or six best schools systems in the, in the, the country, in public school systems. And that is a huge piece of attracting people to Vermont. You know, it's something we should be celebrating, selling, uh, you know, and, and making making fuss about. Well, and you uh, were the one who said that that you felt like there was too much negativity. So yes. I, that sounds like that's when we uh, we have. Although I, I I think I think we are known for that. I mean, I don't yeah. I don't I, th I think we are. That is out there. That the education system here is good, amongst other things. Um, but um, Mike, did you want to add anything to that? No, I, uh, not really. I, I we we're, we're trying to support. 30,000 fewer children with the same infrastructure pretty much that we had when, you know, 30,000 kids ago. And uh, so therefore... <laughs> Wait, where did they all go? <laughs> Wait, what, I'm not sure whether I said that exactly right. We're 30,000 we kids yeah. less, yeah. and we got the same as infrastructure, and... And that's 30,000 uh, that, kids Of less. course, the cost oh, per no. student is going to be. Yeah. Uh, that's so since, what, 2010, 20... Really? 2009, I don't know. Like 10 years? Oh, yeah. 10 years. It's about 10, 10 years, 30,000 yeah. kids. 30,000 kids, yeah. This is that big boom of because kids. Is that the, yes. this, yeah, yeah, because the demographics? Yeah. Yeah. Sort of flattened the demographic off, is graying. You know, Vermont, the Vermont uh, yes. population is graying. We're part of it. <laughs> <laughs> I am anyway. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, uh, we need to attract younger families into Vermont. and. One of the ways to do that is uh, to make, make Vermont more affordable. How do you do that? Well, one way is to help uh, reduce the cost of childcare. And that's, that's a big negative when it comes to somebody that wants to move to Vermont that has kids. Because you've got to either have uh, one, per, one 
parents staying at home or else if both parents are working and we have a lot of two, two career families, uh, one of the parents is going to pay, be paying a huge percentage of their income for childcare. And so that's, some, that's another thing where we have to invest in order to, in order to make things better for all the monitors. <clears throat> so um, that's my take on it. Okay. Trevor, would you like to add something? Well, uh, two things, I guess. Uh, one that, thing. We, we have time for one thing. One thing. <laughs> well, I, I just, I, yeah, I, I, there was a study that was recently, well, done in the last year or so that looked at, there's been a lot of conversation about we're spending too much money in our educational system. And, and I think when you look at the, the, the sort of what I call the general educational piece of it, people seem to think, the research seems to show, we're doing just about right. Mm -hmm. And back to uh, Representative Till's comment about it's the special education piece in particular that's out of whack. Mm -hmm. And that we need to get away from that regimented structure and provide more flexibility within the schools. Think block grants and let them decide how best to utilize those debt funding streams. So that's the one thing I would add. Okay, great, thank you. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining. We're out of time. Thank you for joining oh, me tonight. I appreciate it. Went fast, right? I know, we could have done another hour. You'll have to thank, come back again. Thanks for having us. Of course, of course. Um, and I want to let everyone know, don't forget, you can vote now. You can vote early at your town or city hall. I always forget to say that, so I want to make sure I got that in there. Um, or you can vote on Election Day, Tuesday, November 6th. Um, and be sure to stay tuned to Channel 17 because we're going to have lots more election coverage for you. Thanks so much for joining us. Good night. And thanks. Thank you.